It's so good to see everyone on this beautiful, sunny Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but the beginning of a school year always fills me with this real sense of anticipation and excitement with all that God is going to teach us and do with us and in us this coming year. And so I just invite you to stand and sing with us as we sing his praises and his glory. And I invite you to really think about opening our hearts and our minds to receive all that he has to teach us today. Let's sing together.
once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to. Father, we have come today to declare that all we have is Christ. We've come today to be in your presence. And we pray that our worship would bring honor and glory to you and and that would allow you to work in us to make us more like Christ. We offer this hour to you and we do so through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Before you're seated, take a moment and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Well, it's great to see you as uh, we gather for worship today. We uh, welcome those of you who are guests this morning and welcome uh, either for the first time or back to Houghton, students, the academy and the college. And 
We're excited to have you here. There's just a great energy that uh, you bring not only to the campuses, but to the church as well. And we love having you here, and we're excited about uh, this year together of journeying and, and uh, growing in Christ. There are a few things I want to highlight uh, in the bulletin. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll be hosting a service of prayer right here in the sanctuary. If you would like for the pastoral staff to pray for you or for someone else, uh, we'll be here to do that. We uh, will have, we are, we'll anoint uh, you with oil and uh, pray over you if you'd like to do that. We're also going to be spending some time just praying for this new academic year and asking for God's grace and his power to be upon us and to do some transformational things uh, among us. At 7 o'clock is the first koinonia. Uh, this is a time of worship, uh, music, and reading of scripture. And that will be in the chapel, in the college, 7 to 8 tonight. And we invite you to be a part of that gathering. Next Sunday morning is the beginning of Christian Life Emphasis Week. It's always a, a highlight in the, the year. As uh, we have uh, Jeremy Kingsley, who's going to be coming to speak. He's head of One Life Ministries. And he will be here uh, Sunday through Wednesday. And uh, most of the activities will take place at the college chapel. But Sunday morning we'll be here. And he'll be speaking in our services. There are, there's a whole plethora of inserts in your bulletin today. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I think is significant for spiritual growth is being involved in, in smaller settings where you can connect with people uh, and also ministry. And the, the inserts are about both. There are, there's information about uh, being in, involved in small groups, uh, Sundays, different days of the week. Uh, there also is information about ways in which you can be involved in ministry, working with children, youth, adults, music. Uh, all kinds of things, and we'd love to have you involved. And it will, it's one of the ways in which we grow spiritually is by giving of ourselves to others. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in being involved in ministry or you just want to know more about it, you can uh, just fill out one of the inserts or you can also check on our church website and the address is listed in the bulletin there as well. There are always things that we're praying about, concerns related to us individually and as a community as well as the nation and the world. We certainly want to remember the people who have been most affected by Hurricane Isaac uh, down in the southern part of the United States and just other situations that are going on in our world in which we are asking for God's grace and mercy. We're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us now in the giving of our tithes and offerings. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and he had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there.
prayer. It's been our practice for a while to open the altar. If you'd like to use this, use the altar as your place of prayer. I invite you to join me. Otherwise, please be seated. Father, today we come to you asking you to hear us. This is not our prayer because we are concerned that you won't. But it just belies the passion in our hearts that we want relationship with you. That we know that you love us and care for us. That your desire is, is to fill our lives with the fullness of who you are. We come today acknowledging that you care about every minute detail in every single one of our lives. In this church, in this town, in our communities, in your world. So, Father, we come today asking you to hear us because we know that you do. And we're confident of your loving kindness. Father, we come today with all kinds of burdens and and passions in our lives and concerns and struggles. And honestly, this morning, for some of us, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Some of it is physical, some of it's emotional, some of it's mental, some of it's spiritual, some of it's relational, some of it is is anxiety and worry and fear about the future. We just struggle with stuff. In this moment of silence, we pour out our hearts to you about all of this stuff that we're wrestling with today. And we give it to you. And we ask for your healing, for your grace, for your mercy, your strength, your courage, your guidance, for your spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray not only for ourselves and for those whom we love, but we pray for this world, 
Think about the people who have been affected by the hurricane this week. And we ask for your grace upon the city of New Orleans and the surrounding areas who once again are dealing with flooding and disaster. We thank you that it is not as bad as Katrina, but it is devastating for many people nonetheless. We pray that your people in that place would be a beacon of light and hope in a very difficult situation. We pray for the nations of the world where war and violence is just common life. And we ask that you would bring peace. We pray for the nations of the world where people have no knowledge of you and they have no no means of, of knowing you and your love for them. And we pray that your people in those places would be light in the darkness, would be hope in despair, and that your spirit would work through them in a way that is beyond our ability to this day comprehend. Father, we pray for the political process in our nation as the parties are meeting for their conventions, Lord, instead of the nation being divided more and more, we pray that through your miraculous power, there would be a sense of unity around what is best for our nation. We pray that that the partisan politics that have torn our nation apart and that are, are causing people who have needs to not have those needs met, that that would come to an end. And we pray that your church, your people, would be a catalyst for, for communicating and sharing your spirit of grace in some very difficult circumstances. Father, we thank you for this new year that's upon us. We pray that this year would be an awesome time of, of growing intellectually and relationally and emotionally, but also spiritually. Father, we pray that when this academic year comes to an end, we will look back and say, we are more like Christ now than we were then. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for loving us, for caring for us. Thank you for being here with us. We offer our prayer In the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who gives us the model for prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Today's scripture passage comes from Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. 
Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and join us as we sing.
Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Give us ears to hear. And we pray that as we continue in worship, we will know the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking into our lives. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I don't think it would surprise you if I said to you that we live in a world of, what have you done for me lately? You know, prolific authors are only as good as their latest novel. Grammy Award winning musicians are only as good as their latest album. World-class athletes are, are always looking over their shoulder because someone is coming along who's faster, stronger, better. CEOs of companies that you know, are expected to, to turn a profit and to bring money to the shareholders, and not just yearly, but quarterly. And if they don't, they're out. And if your championship team wins whatever sport they're playing... We celebrate and we're excited. And it isn't very long, though, when we're asking, so when are they going to win the next one? But this attitude of what have you done for me lately is not something that was born in the 21st century. It's not even something that was born in the last few decades. You can trace it back at least as far as the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. If we go back in time, in the book of Exodus, we find that as it starts, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. And they cry out to God and God says, all right, I'm going to do something about it. And he puts his hand on Moses and he sends Moses to Egypt. And through Moses and the series of events, the people of Israel are brought out of Egyptian captivity. And God parts the Red Sea and they walk across and there's all these miraculous things that happen. And he brings them to the desert. And all the while, he's been promising them this land where he's taking them. This land flowing with milk and honey, which is just simply symbolic of it's going to be better than you could ever dream or imagine. This is an awesome land. And that's where I'm taking you. And they get to the wilderness and God says, there's a few things you need to know before you get to the land. I want you to know me more. I want you to understand what the expectations are. And so he calls Moses up to the mountain. And Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. And while Moses is there getting the law from God, the Israelites get antsy. And they come to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, we don't know if Moses is coming back or not. Do something. And so Aaron says, all right, give me all your gold. And they melt down the gold into the shape of a calf. And if you remember back to that story, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he looks at Aaron and says, really, what are you doing? He says, look, they gave me their gold. I threw it in a pot. This is what came out. (laughs) Really? Okay, well, all right, stick with that story. Um, And the people, and Aaron says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And the people worship this golden calf. And there's, there's all kinds of hedonistic revelry going on. And as you might well imagine, God is angry. And Moses is angry. Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets and he smashes them. You can even in this picture see him in the background walking down. He smashes the tablets in anger. And now you come to chapter 33. And, God, and it begins a chapter with God saying to, to the people of Israel, All right, I'm going to get you into the land. I'm going to help you get established I'm going to send angels before you to drive out the people who are now living there. I'm going to fulfill my promise. One thing, I'm not going to go with you. Now, that's a pretty amazing thing that God says because the whole book of Exodus is about God dwelling with his people. From the very beginning, God has said... I'm calling you out to be my people so I can dwell with you. The 29th chapter of Exodus says, 
You'll, they will, people will know that I am your God because I dwell among you. Everything that God is doing is about dwelling with his people. Now, we take that for granted. If, you, if you've read the Bible much, if you know the stories of, of the Old Testament, you know that God has talked about being with his people. And I think we take that for granted. But you have to put it in the context of all the other nations around Israel. Because this is a foreign concept to them. They have no concept of a personal God. Of their God who would want to dwell with them and be with them. In their minds, the gods that they worship are manipulative and, and they are capricious and they're demanding. And they, they, won't, they don't want a relationship with people. The only reason that human beings are even connected to them is so that human beings can be their slaves. So that human beings can do things for them or because they simply have to deal with human beings because they've been punished as gods. He reminds me of, the, of the, the, the book and the movie, The Help. Some of you may have read the book or seen the movie. And it's a story about, about some uh, socialite white women in the deep south in the 50s, early 60s, who hire black women to come and work in their homes. And the white socialite women live in these nice, beautiful homes in the nice, beautiful sections of town. And the black women live in shacks in the poor section of town. And these white socialite women, the the black women come to their home, but not because the white women want to be friends with them, not because they want to build a relationship with them, not because they can even do something to help these women, but simply because these black women are willing to be paid a pittance to do what the white women don't want to do. That's the whole of their relationship. And the ancient peoples view their gods the same way. The only reason those gods have any connection to me is so that I can do something for them. So they can manipulate me, so they can use me, but they don't want a relationship with me. And God has said from the beginning to his people, I want relationship with you. This is not just about me doing something for you. I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell among you. I want to be your God. I want, I want us to be connected to each other. And now God is saying, that's not going to happen. Now he says to the people, the reason why I'm not going to go with you into the promised land is because you folks are, are stubborn. He says to Moses, you go to the people and tell them you are a stiff-necked people. Boy, wouldn't that have been a fun sermon to preach. I thought about actually starting today, just stepping up and saying to all of you, this is the most stiff-necked group of people I've ever seen in my life. And you'd be saying, what? You know, that, the word stiff-necked comes from the agricultural world. And it relates to a yoke that oxen would wear. The, 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 the oxen would be put in the yoke and then tied to the plow... And, and they would, the farmer would then plow the field. And the, uh, the yoke allowed the oxen, whether it was, here would be two of them, but sometimes one. But they would plow the field and the yoke would allow the farmer to keep them in a straight line. Because without the yoke, the ox is just going to walk all over the place. And he plow in a straight line, which then allows the farmer to plant the seed. And then to harvest his crops down, later on. And then to feed his family, and ironically, the oxen. And, but the oxen don't like the yoke. It's heavy. This is a really light yoke that someone made, but it, it, it's, it's very heavy. And they don't like it. It's, con, it's constraining. And, and, it, and it keeps them from doing what they want to do. And if, a, if an ox is especially stubborn, then that ox will eventually fight enough and pull enough and push enough and be violent enough that probably one of two things is going to happen. Either he's going to break the yoke or he's going to break his own neck. And God says to the Israelites, you guys are like oxen that don't want to be in a yoke. It's the same term that's used in Exodus 1 to describe what Israel is going through as slaves in Egypt. It's a word that describes how Pharaoh responds to God when Moses says, let my people go. 
So now God is saying to Israel, you're no different than Pharaoh is. We understand that, don't we? We understand what it means to be stiff-necked. God, how could you do that to me? I, I can't trust you anymore. God, do you know what you're doing? I know, God, you want me to go this way, but I want to go that way. And this way is a whole lot better than your way. I'm going my way. I don't know how many times I've read through the the Old Testament and some of the stories of the Israelites, like the golden calf. And I think to myself, how could they be so stupid? After all the things God has done for them, how could they turn on him so quickly? And it's as though in that moment, I feel God's tap on my shoulder. Really? Seriously? You're going to say that about those people? You are? Mr. I want to go my own way? We understand what it means to be stubborn and stiff-necked and to turn our own way instead of God's way. One of the things about this passage that probably makes us scratch our heads is in verses 3 and 5, as God's telling them they're stiff-necked, he also says that if I go with them, I'm probably going to kill them. You know, your parents say to you, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to hurt you. And God says, I, I'm, I'm going to destroy them. And honestly, that kind of bothers us. That's not an image of God that we like to talk about. God's wrath and God's judgment makes us nervous. Interestingly enough, it doesn't seem to make the writers of Scripture nervous because they talk about it. But it makes us nervous. It, it sort of offends the, our, our view of God because we have a view of God as this doting grandfather. Who would never do anything that, never keep us from doing anything we want to do. His whole purpose for existence is just to give us what we want. He would never get angry at us. He would never do anything contrary to what we want. And and we hear about God who is so angry with the Israelites that he may destroy them. And it bothers us. I think part of it is because we have a, we have a misunderstanding of anger. You know, sometimes anger is not bad. Sometimes anger is good. Don't you want to be angry about injustice? See, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And when we see injustice going on in the world and around us, if we sit back and say, oh, it doesn't bother me. I'm not going to get angry about that. Then that ought to bother us. We ought to be angry about some things. We ought to be angry that, that innocent people are, are blown up by suicide bombs. We ought to be angry when our government takes advantage of people who can't defend themselves. We ought to be angry about human trafficking. It ought to make us angry. There is this righteous indignation. And when you're involved in relationships, you know, good relationships... Are, are loving and, and kind and gentle, but sometimes there's anger. And why is that? It's because you care. If you see, if, if you, some of you I know are, are not parents yet, but you can envision someday when, when you're, even if you're just babysitting a, a little one, and you're, you're watching them, you have a, you have a child, and they, they start to run out into the road, are you just going to say, well, hey, they got to go their own way, they got to learn their lessons? Of course not. And are you just going to pull them aside and say, you know, you probably want to think about not doing that again? No, you're in their face. And you're yelling at them. And you're trying to help them understand this is bad. And you really, your, your goal is to scare them so they never do it again. And there is something of that in, in how God responds to our sin. Because you see, Israel is God's witness in the world. God has said, I'm I'm bringing you out of slavery. I'm putting you in the promised land. And I will be with you so that you can be my witness to everyone else. So they'll know my love and compassion and kindness and be drawn to me and know life that I created them to experience. That's one of the primary reasons I've called you out. And if you're going to live and, and and promote a false image of me. And you're going to treat me just like any other God and act like I'm, like I'm no different from all the other gods who are capricious and unloving and uncaring. 
then that's going to get passed along to your children and they're going to see me that way and your grandchildren are going to see me that way and all the other nations are going to see me that way and, and no one's going to, to want the life that I want to give them. No wonder God's angry. In response, the Israelites realize that what they've done is wrong and they do something interesting. It says they strip off their ornaments. You wonder, what does that have to do with anything? I think probably do it for two reasons. One is because it was their ornaments that they used to melt them down and make the golden calf. And they're basically saying, let's sort of distance ourselves from that. But the other part of it is ornaments are used in celebration. They're a symbol of, of joy and, and, and they are in mourning. And they want God to know they're serious about it. And then Moses says to God, one of the most intriguing things that I, that I read in the scriptures... He says, God, if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. If you're not going to go with us to the promised land, then we'll just stay here. Because if you're not in the promised land, it's not the promised land. And I think we wrestle with that, with that truth. I think we wrestle with with coming to that reality that God's presence is should be our passion rather than God's promises and God's gifts. And I suspect that most of us are more interested in God's promises, more interested in God's gifts as wonderful as they are than we are in God's presence. Because when you talk about God's presence, you're talking about relationship. And relationships are hard. And we'd much rather have someone who just gives us things without us having to really do anything or engage ourselves in any way. But relationships involve sacrifice and, and working things out and, and, and dealing with another person. And, and they can be difficult sometimes. And we live in a world where we don't want difficult We want easy. Just tell me, what's the quickest way to get to what I want? See, we're all about the end of the journey. And God is about the journey itself. It isn't just, well, I got to this end. God is about what's happening in your life today. What's happening in your life right now. What's happening in your life tomorrow. It's not just about the end. It's about the journey. I see this with, as, as I, as I, Think about what I see in a lot of society and culture and, and about how we think about weddings and marriage. You know, I have a confession to make. Sometimes I like watching some of the wedding shows that are on some of the television networks. Don't tell anybody I said that, okay? I watch them because it's a fascinating glimpse into how culture thinks. You know, and, and one of the things that comes out of that to me is for a lot of people, the wedding is more important than the marriage. I mean, I cannot believe the amount of money and time and resources that some of these people spend on the wedding. And, and you, you'd almost think that that was it. Oh, oh, we're married. Oh, OK, well, that's just a bonus. You know, it's, a, it's about the marriage the wedding just gets us there. But in, in, in similar ways, we think like that. We, we, want, we just are concerned about getting to the, the easiest, quickest way to the end. And God is about the journey. We're about speed. God is about patient growth. And we have come to believe that salvation is about a moment in time. When the scriptures tell us that salvation is about a lifetime with Christ. It's about relationship. And when we fall into that trap, we begin to believe that God's promises and God's gifts are more important than God himself. Someone was telling me recently about when their children were young, grade school age, the, the children, one of the children's grandmothers had a practice of coming home at night and cleaning the change out of her purse. And she had little jars for each of the grandchildren. And she would put the change in the jars. 
And then when the kids came, grandchildren came to visit, she would give them the money. Well, as you might guess, what happened is when they, when they come from their drive to grandma's house, they jump out of the car, run to the house, and grandma would be there to greet them. And they just run right past grandma and head for the money. Show me the money. And, you know, the parents at first thought this was a nice thing grandma was doing. And then they watched that happen a couple of times and realized this is bad. And so they say, look, you have to at least stop and give grandma a hug and say something to her on the way in. But even when they were hugging grandma, they were looking past grandma, thinking past grandma to the loot they were about to get. And I think a lot of us treat God the same way. Yeah, God, I know you you want to be with us. That's wonderful. What are you going to do for me? What promises are you going to give me? What gifts are you going to put on me? What are you going to give and put into my life? And see, it's counterintuitive because we have come to believe that what people in the world are looking for is flash. And people in the world are looking for spectacular. And so we're saying, God, just do something amazing. And it's great when God does things that are amazing. But when that becomes our focus, then it's really not about God. It's about just ways that we manipulate God into giving us what we want. And Moses says in verse 16, Lord, how is the world going to know? How are all these other nations and people going to know that we're your people if you're not with us? How will we ever be a community of faith in this place if our passion isn't for God to be with us? And our passion of relationship with God. We won't really be God's people to the world without the presence of God, without focusing on the relationship with God. And here's the interesting thing. When you're passionate about, about the presence of God, ultimately the gifts and the promises come. If we're passionate about the gifts and the promises, that's all we get. On the last night before Jesus went to the cross, he's meeting with his disciples and he said to them, the world will know that you're my disciples if... You can do great miracles. If you can move mountains, if you can heal the sick. Now he said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. They'll know you're my disciples if you look like me. And the only way we can look like Jesus is to be filled with his spirit. That comes from being in his presence. So what does it look like to be passionate about the presence of God? To be passionate about wanting relationship with God, even if the gifts and the promises never come? It's looking like Christ. So when we're tempted to be short and impatient with people, we choose patience like God does. When we see people in need that we would rather avoid, we choose compassion like Christ does. And we get involved in people's lives and we become the presence of Christ with needy people. When we want to lash out at people who have hurt us, we instead choose forgiveness. When we want to be harsh, We choose gentleness. When the world tells us, hoard everything you can because you don't know how long you're going to have it, we choose generosity that's sacrificial. Generosity like Jesus. It's really the difference between seeing God as our Father who wants relationship with us or seeing God as someone we can manipulate into giving us things that we want. I heard a story that actually took place in this church. Probably... 20-some years ago, I would guess. It was before we lived here. 
There was a little boy about four or five years old who was just on the cusp of having a birthday. And he was as excited as anyone could get about having a birthday. He had made a list of all the gifts he was hoping to get and made sure that, you know, it was on the refrigerator so mom and dad could see it. And all he could talk about was this big birthday and all the things that he was going to get for this birthday. And this was a conversation that took place so long that his parents were kind of getting tired of it. His birthday was on Monday. And Sunday night, the church had a big potluck dinner. So everybody's in the community room back here, sitting around the table. And as they they get everybody calmed down, and Pastor Mike is going to have a prayer before they eat. And he begins his prayer saying... Lord, thank you for your presence here with us today. And a little boy's head popped up and he said, presents? We got presents here? People brought me presents? This is awesome. And the person telling me the story said it was all they could do not to just burst out laughing at the table around them as as Pastor Mike had finished the prayer. I think we get that mixed up too. As you think about this year to come, As you think about the passion of your life, the goal of your life, the drive of your life, is it about getting presence from God? Or is it about dwelling in the presence of God? Our decision makes a world of difference. Heavenly Father, You know our propensity to want stuff from you instead of just being so fulfilled and satisfied with you. We see ourselves in the Israelites. We know how stubborn we can be and we know how we wrestle to see who you are. Father, today... Give us a new vision of relationship with you. And to hear and see your desire in your love and grace to dwell among us. That we would be your people. That the world might see something in us and turn to you. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.